welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Yellow Roses Podcast. Today we have special guest, author and journalist, Nancy V. Kennedy, here to speak with us all about her book, Women Win the Vote. Enjoy! Thank you for inviting me. Uh, my book is Women Win the Vote, 19 for the 19th Amendment. We, uh, My publisher and I uh, managed to get it out for the uh, centennial of the of women uh, winning the right to vote through the 19th Amendment in 1920. Uh, I chose, uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself first. I've been a writer all my life. Um, I uh, have a, a degree in journalism, and I worked in newspapers and magazines for uh, many years. Uh, and then uh, I got the bug to write books eventually, and uh, the Women Win the Vote is my eighth book. Well, because you're who I had in mind when I wrote the book. There, I mean, there are hundreds of books about the suffrage fight. But when I started to look at them and wonder how... Well, where do I fit in? What do I have to say? Is there anything new to say? I didn't see books out there that uh, talked about the suffragists when they were kids. Um, yeah. Usually, you would get these. You'd read the books, and they're act, fully formed adult activists. And I wanted to know uh, what were these women's childhoods like? Where did they grow up? Um, what kind of discrimination did they face, or uh, what brought them to the suffrage fight? So that's what I wanted to do. I, in the book, um, I uh, talk about 19 women, 19 for the 19th, and uh, kind of um, begin with their life as young as I could find information, and then bring them up to uh, when they, you know, the, the seminal moment, the moments that made them think, okay. Working for the vote is my life's work. Do you think that living in Rochester, uh, the hometown of Susan B. Anthony, helped you become who you are today as a writer? Well, I think about it now. Um, there is a museum in Rochester. Uh, Susan B. Anthony's home is now a museum. And I've been trying to get there <laughs> for a couple of years. Uh, a snowstorm prevented us once. And uh, there was unrest in the city uh, recently, and it wasn't, um, we were advised not to go into the city. Uh, so I, I still have family in Rochester, and um, every time I go back, I want to see something else, something <laughs> new. There's a statue in Rochester. It's like a, a tableau. It's Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass sitting on park benches and having tea. They were uh, great friends, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. Um, and Frederick Douglass was a, f a, a friend of the women's movement for his entire life. He could understand, having been a slave, he could understand uh, women uh, being virtually enslaved by having no rights. When did you first learn about suffrage? Because even though you grew up there, you didn't really learn about it back then. So No, and I hope you're learning about it in school. Maybe my memory is bad, but I don't remember learning anything about it in school. Uh, I first heard about it at um, uh, the end of 2017. And um, I mean, I just had absolutely no idea that this was a 72-year fight that uh, women endured scorn and ridicule. Um, when they spoke for suffrage, people threw things at them, books, rocks. Uh, one suffragist was uh, hosed with ice water when she was 
talking. Wow. And then in, in, in the later years, um, the, the militant women from about 1910 on, uh, they started parading in the streets and uh, picketing at the gates of the White House. And that was a, a really fantastic um, way to, to work for the vote because uh, actually suffragists were the first organized group to picket the White House. I mean, today, there's someone out there almost every day. Uh, every time we go to DC, there's always some group outside the gates of the White House. And that's and the suffragists started it. Since we're kind of talking about not learning about suffrage in schools, when visiting schools and talking with younger children about the suffrage movement, what surprised you in both positive and negative ways? Well, it, it did surprise me that still, even today, um, Pretty much if you ask people, what uh, students, what they know about suffrage, they might know something about Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, but the movement involved uh, millions of women. Um, most of them we don't know anything about. And yet these women uh, devoted their whole lives, some of them, their entire lives to getting the vote. Mm-hmm. And I am... Uh, I. One of the things I do when I meet with students is um, I give them a ballot, little ballots, like you would put in a ballot box. Okay. And I ask, them, I ask them to write on it something that they would like to work toward, something that they're passionate about. And the answers that I get are very uh, surprising and encouraging. Uh, the students I've met with uh, have some great goals working in their communities, um, working for justice, uh, working for racial equality, um, stop the the uh, the uh, cutting down of trees in the forest. I mean, uh, I really love giving the students a chance to say what's yeah. on their mind. What's on yeah. your mind? <laughs> in your book, how do you consider that diversity when choosing which women to feature in your book? Oh, that's a great question. Because I only had 19 uh, slots, 19 for the 19th, I did, and also I also needed to find uh, women who not only fought for the vote, but women I could find enough information about. One of the things about diversity, uh, when you try to find information about uh, women who worked within Black organizations or Native American or Japanese or whatever, there's just not as much information. Uh, but I wanted to represent diversity in the book. So there are um, mm-hmm. both black and white suffragists. And even some of the, when I talk about some of the white suffragists, their concerns, uh, through their concerns, I was able to bring up more about the diversity. For example, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, one of the suffragists in upstate New York, uh, she, uh, she was very interested in Native American culture, and she wrote about it uh, quite frequently for uh, newspapers, even national newspapers. Uh, <clears throat> and she really admired uh, the Native American form of government in which uh, women were not only equal, they uh, had the ability to choose leaders, to choose what kind of work they wanted to do. Uh, chill, their children um, came down through the mother's line, not the father's. And so uh, women could leave property to their children, which um, white women couldn't do, which women in America couldn't do at that point. So I enjoyed um, 
I enjoy talking about uh, these women and their concerns. Uh, some concerns uh, were about uh, issues that are troublesome today. Uh, Frances Willard started the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She wanted to, <coughs> excuse me, ban the sale of alcohol because she saw alcohol abuse uh, destroying families. And that's an issue we have today. So I have a question. Are there some people that you wish that you had put in your book since you only had 19 slots? Yes. There are so many more I wish I could have put in. <laughs> and some, you know, that last chapter in my book, I have, I think it's 10 very brief bios of women. And I would love to have expanded those like Josephine, St. Pierre Rufin. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, she was very interesting. Um, Ellen, uh, let's, I'm going to get her name wrong. She's got four names. Ellen Frances Harper was a, a writer, a woman writer of the time. And uh, she uh, talked frequently about the inequality between white and black women. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I keep researching the suffrage fight. And if I get a chance, I would like to write another book. Uh, the other thing that interests me and suffragists I'd like to talk about and would have loved to include in the book I want to talk about the suffragists who, there were girls out there as young as 12 and 14 speaking for suffrage on street corners. Um, one of the, the very youngest suffragists to be jailed for picketing the White House was 19 years old. Uh, there were a lot of young activists and I would love to research and, and find out more about them. They were brave, oh my goodness. Uh, there was a parade, a suffrage parade in 1913 uh, in Washington, D.C. There was a 16-year-old girl in that parade, and it turned violent. Men started abusing the women, tripping them, uh, putting out cigars on their arms, trying to, uh, some of them, beat women with their pole, the poles of their banners. And this 16-year-old girl wrote about it later, and she was terrified. Uh, men were trying to lift her skirts, she said. And can you imagine that being that young and facing that violence and that um, terror? Um, they were brave. Can and I have a good story to tell you about how the book came to be. Is that one of the questions yes. that's coming up? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, for those who, um, who uh, are interested in writing and publishing a book, uh, once I had the idea for this book, uh, time was short, and I needed to get it in front of uh, the right people who could consider publishing it. The first thing I did, I started writing, not knowing if anybody wanted this book, but I started writing, and uh, the first thing I did was sign up for a writer's conference. It was uh, sponsored by Rutgers University, which is uh, close to me here in New Jersey. And <clears throat> so uh, I had a couple of months to put together my book proposal so that I could pitch the idea. And at the writers conference, there were two things that appealed to me. Number one, you could meet one on one with agents and a literary agent is the person that can take your manuscript into a publisher. Um, and then the second thing that was going on at that conference was a contest called Pitchapalooza. And it, if you're familiar with American Idol, it's the same sort of thing. A writer got one minute to pitch your book in front of the judge, a panel of judges at the microphone, and uh, they at the uh, 
at the end of the contest, they were choosing 20 people to pitch. And at the end, they would choose a winner. And the winner could have her book, his or her book uh, put in front of the appropriate people. So can I tell you how outside my comfort zone this yes. was? <laughs> can, can you guess how many words? You know, you only got one minute. How many words do you think that is? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I would be talking so fast. <laughs> so, so few, so much. It's only 150 words about. So I had to work on a pitch that I could fit into 150 words, one minute. Wow. <laughs> so I um, practiced it for weeks uh, leading up to the conference because I, I don't know about you, but speaking in front of people terrifies me. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so we get to the, I got to the conference, and they had a very old-fashioned way of doing it. You put your name in a hat if you wanted to have the opportunity to pitch. And uh, then uh, in the middle of the day, it was over the lunch hour when we were all in a huge room. There's 200 of us in that room. Wow. And they were going to choose tw- – they were choosing just 20 writers. So, you know, one, t- one in ten chance that I'd get chosen. And what if I didn't? I was terrified. What if I didn't? What would I do? So they started drawing the numbers and people were giving their pitches, you know, one, two, three, and then seven, eight, nine. Then they were getting up to 13, 14, 15, and it wasn't me. And um, so then we got up to 18 and they chose my name. (laughs) Oh, phew. So I stood in front of the microphone and gave my pitch. I only stumbled on one word, the last word, but that was all right. And then after the 20 writers had pitched, the judges went out. And the judges, you might be familiar, one of the judges was uh, the agent for, the literary agent for Kwame Alexander. And uh, one of them was an editor for uh, Kwame Alexander's uh, imprint, Versify. So these were pretty terrifying people to pitch to. (laughs) Yeah. So they went out and they deliberated and they came back and they announced the winner and I had won the Chipalooza. Oh, yay! (laughs) So uh, after that, I uh, went to my uh, one-on-one, another pitch session with an agent where you get another chance to pitch. It's 10 minutes this time, so you can say a little more. And so I sat down with uh, this agent and I said, oh, you know, I just one pitch of Palooza, and she is, she surprised me. She reached across the table and grabbed my hands, and she said, isn't that wonderful? What are we going to call your book? <laughs> so they did, in fact, that agency did, in fact, sign me and help me get my book in shape for editors, and uh, within three months, we had interest, and um, I-, I was so thrilled when Norton Young Readers Sign the book because um, they're just one of the most respected nonfiction publishers uh, in this country, and I just felt honored to be one of their authors. That's so cool. And I just want to take a moment to say, your book is so beautiful, like <laughs> the cover and everything. Isn't it? You know, I had uh, Norton had such a wonderful vision for the book. Um, you, I'll get my copy too. We'll open. <laughs> We'll open it and, and look at it. Um, every every page is in color. 
The drawings by Katie Dockrell are fabulous. Yes. I was just about to ask, um, how could you tell us about your illustrator and did you collaborate on the design or? It's, it's very, um, it's not the process you would think. Uh, first, the uh, book is accepted by the publisher. And then if it's going to be an illustrated book, um, they choose the illustrator. So uh, I have absolutely no idea what my book is going to look like. I, uh, <laughs> and I didn't know until about three months before it was published. Uh, and at that point, uh, we did need to do some work to, um, we wanted to, you know, if you saw the book, the first page is the picture of the suffragist, the uh, photograph with a quote that kind of cues you into who she is. And we had to match up those quotes. I had to quickly find the sources for them. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, Katie and I talk frequently now. Katie Dockrell is the illustrator. Uh, she, uh, of course, um, when I want to do something with the illustrations, I don't want to do it without her approval. Uh, for example, on my website, I've been adding some activities uh, now that the winter is upon us and just, um, something to be that, that relates to the book. I put a word search on the website mm -hmm. and um, uh, in, uh, name the suffragists where I number the, the women on the cover and you have to name who, who is who after <laughs> reading the book. And I'm working on some coloring pages. We want to change some of the illustrations into coloring pages. Oh, that's awesome. So I was wondering, you said that when you were writing, it was a really weird process for the illustrations. But when you were talking about writing your actual book, how did you make sure that all their facts were true? Oh, that's such a huge job. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wanted to source. The one thing about my book, the other thing that I wanted to do, make sure I did was I wanted to hear from the women themselves. I did, you know, I you could get information, people talking about these women, but I wanted to hear their own words. So that's why I read so many books and hundreds of articles. Uh, I subscribed to newspaper archives where I could go all the way back to 18, the 1800s. And every time I saw a woman's, uh, who, uh, something that she said, um, I wanted to source it because uh, I wanted to make sure that people understood that I wasn't making this up, that you know, nonfiction is, is, in my mind, nonfiction is fact. And I wanted to make sure that I could substantiate everything I said. So at the back of the book, I'm sure you can see uh, pages and pages of uh, source notes for. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just, I mean, I could have researched forever. I loved hearing from the women themselves what they had to say, not only in public and speeches, but there are plenty of uh, diaries and memoirs and letters. Women wrote letters to each other. Um, there's a trove of letters at the University of Rochester that, uh, between uh, Isabella Beecher Hooker and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And it was like a round robin. They passed their letters around. <laughs> so they would, you would see something uh, put at the end uh, that, that clued you in that this letter was making the rounds to everybody. So everybody understood what was, you know, what their role in the suffrage fight was, what they had to do next, what they needed. What they needed was often money. <laughs> yeah. 
it's yeah. So we 100% love your suffragist costume. Can you oh, tell us? You. Can you tell us more about like the cow you created that character? Sure. Why you choose sure. to wear the outfit? Sure. That's a really interesting point. Uh, of course, when the suffrage fight started, it was the mid 1800s, and women. I'm sure you've seen pictures. They were wearing voluminous clothing. Uh, they were wearing corsets and petticoats and hoops, and their hats were big and swooping. I mean, clothes could weigh 20 pounds back then. Women were dragging around these heavy uh, outfits. Yeah. And when women started to work for the vote, uh, it, you know, even movement, even taking a walk was, was difficult. And um, it wasn't until, say, the early 1900s when women started to enter the workforce. And they found that they had to wear clothes that they could move in, uh, teachers and uh, women who worked in factories. And then when the suffrage uh, movement turned to uh, marching parades um, uh, down the street and uh, women needed, you know, they needed to be able to move, uh, clothing got much less restrictive. This dress that I'm wearing, uh, it's a, like a white blouse on top and a black skirt. Uh, it would be something that uh, a teacher might wear. Uh, um, and uh, in the parades, they had these wonderful sashes. Yes. I, got, <laughs> I, I made yellow. one. Did you? Do you have yes. it? Yeah, What's I it do. Right here. Let's see. I sort of wear yes. a Halloween costume. That's fantastic. That looks like my yellow one. I got this one for Christmas. It's in the in the oh. colors of a suffrage fight: purple, gold, and white. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I tried to in my outfit. I also uh, these straw boaters were very popular at the time, and much more uh, wearable than huge hats with feathers and birds and whatever they put on their hats. Uh, I also got this brooch for Christmas. Uh, women had lovely jewelry back then, and even suffragists wanted to have a little something nice. Uh, these earrings were from the period. They're Edwardian earrings. Uh, yeah, and the costume was fun to wear. It was, uh, I didn't, because of the pandemic, I didn't do as many events as I expected. Uh, and wearing this outfit is great in the winter. It's very warm. But in the middle of the summer, <laughs> not so great. I don't know how these women did it. Their, and their materials were much more you know, wool and cotton and um, natural fibers that um, breathe, but they were hot. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today. We had a lot of fun listening to all your stories. Yes. And it was amazing. So thanks. thank you so much, Nancy B. Kennedy, oh. for that fantastic interview. Visit Nancy's website, nancybkennedy.com, to learn more about suffrage. Go to theyellowroses.com. Thanks, thanks for watching this episode of our podcast.